Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. And this is one of those plus weeks, except it's also a minus week. Math isn't my strong suit, so I'll just say we're covering Excalibur minus one, a true and terrible sacrifice, a Stan Lee hosted flashback to Kurt and Amanda's circus days in which Kurt kisses Amanda so pretty I had to make a painting for my wall. Excalibur minus one was originally published in July 1997, and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Rob Haynes and Casey Jones on pencils, Nathan Massengill, Rob Haynes and Casey Jones again on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Matt Idealson on editing. Hi, I'm Stan Lee, editor of the Marvel Comics Group of superhero comic magazines. Comic books have been a big business for the past 25 years, and they're bigger than ever today. With this in mind, you'll be interested to know that the Marvel Comics Group is the acknowledged leader in monthly sales of all comic magazines published today. As a matter of fact, our sales have tripled in the past three years, which is quite a publishing phenomenon. Our superheroes are the kind of people that you or I would be if we had a superpower, which sets them apart from all other superheroes published today and seems to be the reason that they're actually far more popular than any others. Welcome back to the podcast that sometimes talks about UK X-Men and other times, like today, talks about teenage lovebird acrobats at rural German circuses. I am, of course, your regular co-host, Dr. Anna Papard. I love talking about sexy, gendery, and romancy things in comics and pop culture. I am also the co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, which you can now find on Blue Sky, Threads, and Instagram, though we're only really posting on the first two. And of course, I remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I have reread this comic many times even podcasted about it previously over at Grimalkin Lane and soon over at Cerebro, but I've never podcasted about it with the folks who are here, which makes everything exciting and new. So I'm looking forward to it. And these folks are Mav. What are you flashing back to this week? Face front, true believer. It's Chris the Mav Maverick here, and I'm here to say Excelsior. <laughs> uh, school started. <laughs> <laughs> so strong my, energy yeah my, my vacation's over and like I, I mean i've been i've been back at work you know the, the 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 semester started for uh as we record four whole days so i'm way behind already uh because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that's how it works um i mean i actually i don't know that i am but you know 
Uh, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am the co-host of this show and another show called Vox Popcast, and I'm a teaching assistant professor of digital narrative and interactive design at the University of Pittsburgh. What else do I have? Other, uh, I'm the editor of a forthcoming collection, uh, Batman also starring, and I don't sleep much, <laughs> so I'm a little tired. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> I mean, like I like you said, I started with a lot of energy. That's it. I'm done. I, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you've ever like met... HP dropped significantly oh, you, after that. Did, did, you, have, did you ever have a chance to meet Stan? Because... No. There, oh, because Stan was on all the time but there's a noticeable drop when stan because you know like stan was when when i saw him last a 90 something year old man you know and there's a noticeable drop in energy when when you're like stan's been stan's you know 92 or whatever and he's been he's clearly been at it for about six hours and he had four hours worth of energy when he woke up this morning and doing this all the time is really hard true believers you know so (laughs) we are definitely going to talk about his persona today uh, in relation to this comic book um andrew how's your energy level today i'm good i took my kids to a candy store so we're all hopped up on sugar we're gonna do great awesome Yeah, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Devan. I am co-lead at Sequential Scholars and an instructor at St. Jerome's. We're, um, we're a little behind Mav. We'll be welcoming our students back next week. Uh, and I get to teach a brand new comics course that I designed that I'm very excited about. So feeling stretched thin, but through the power of sugar, I'm excited. <laughs> Is that your comics and sexuality course? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. I look forward to to hearing how that goes. Um, And we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by a super swell returning guest who's eager to talk through the legacy of one Stanley Martin Lieber. The pod is delighted to welcome back Dr. Drew Jeffries. Let me say your name again, because I kind of mangled it. The pod is delighted to welcome back Dr. Drew Jeffries. Hello, Drew. Hello. I, I mean, so I'm used to my name being a little bit mangled sometimes from living six years in Montreal. Like, so, I mean, Drew is a perfectly normal name. Uh, Drew Jeffries, like, it's fine with uh, English uh, intonation, but with French, like, it is just the worst combination of syllables uh, imaginable (laughs) for the French. Drew Jeffries, like, there's just no way of saying it in a nice way. So uh, you did great compared to the Quebecois. It's challenging because, like, the vowel and then you got to go into the J sound. It's a bit challenging. But, you know, we got there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let me do a bio of you, Drew, and then we'll get chatting to with you about what you've been up to lately. Dr. Drew Jeffries teaches in the English and Film Studies departments at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is the author of the book Comic Book Film Style, Cinema at 24 Panels Per Second, and the editor of the book Hashtag WWE, Professional Wrestling in the Digital Age. He's recently published in Inks, the Journal of the Comic Studies Society, has a forthcoming article about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse with JCMS. He is also mm. the co-editor with me of a forthcoming academic anthology called Small Screen Supers Essays on Superhero Television. He is also the author of a great essay about Stan Lee's cameos in various Marvel properties, which was in the book Make Ours Marvel, which Drew and I both contributed to, edited by my friend and colleague, Matt Yockey. You know, I, I've thought about asking Matt on the pods, pod so many times, and I also think that he would be very frustrated by the badness of the comics in this era, so I have not done so. <laughs> but if for some reason you're ever listening to this, Matt, know that I did think of you, but protected you from having to talk about these Ben Rob comics. Anyway, getting very <laughs> now, now I'm feeling insulted that I was oh my goodness (laughs) no it's just 
Matt will never listen to this and I'll edit it out if it's bad, but just <laughs> Matt has a real um, anger about comics when they're not good. And I just, I know this about him and um, I don't know if it would be healthy for him to read comics from this era. He hates the nineties too. So I just, it would be a real hard sell for him, Drew. It's, it's, it's nothing personal. I know that Fair you enough. are full of positive energy. <laughs> Always, exclusively. <laughs> Which is why you're here with us today. But anyway, let's catch up with you a little bit. That's not the only reason you're here today. You're also here because of your expertise in um, many of the things we're going to be talking about today. Obviously, and we'll get into it shortly. But yeah, let's catch up a little bit. Do you feel like talking about any of the stuff that you've been working on lately as the semester <laughs> rapidly approaches? I mean, I know you've sure, been watching yeah. a bunch of Superboy. Yeah, I mean, the semester is approaching very rapidly. And I had some I had some projects I wanted to get done over the summer. And I guess you could say I got them done. So the first thing <laughs> I did this summer, I don't know if anyone knows about this one, but I wrote a chapter about Batman the Audio Adventures, the scripted podcast. Oh, Has no. anyone listened to that? No. I have not listened to that one. I've listened to, we did on our, our old show, Three yeah. Panel Contrast. Yeah, we did an episode where we talked about audio dramas and we did the old Fantastic Four one from the 70s and we did the more recent Wolverine one. But I have not. I did not know one. about that Fantastic Four one until oh. I was doing my research for this <laughs> oh, Batman one, and yeah. it sounds absolutely wild. I actually just got like I finished the the chapter and sent it in to the editors of the book that it's for like two months ago, and I just got an interlibrary loan like scan of an article about that Fantastic Four radio drama. Oh man! So a bit late, better late than never, but. Man, might as well have been never. Uh, but, you know, it's great. I really recommend Batman the Audio Adventures. It's a lot of fun. And that's, a, you know, it was a nice excuse to do some scholarship about uh, podcasts, which is not an area of media studies I'd ever dipped my toes in before. And, uh, you know, finding out some new stuff about the, the history of superhero radio. So that was that was the beginning of my summer. And then I moved full tilt into Superboy. Uh, so Superboy is a is a wild show. Has anyone seen it? Now, Mav, I know uh, I read one of the okay, yeah, one of the <laughs> things I read in my research was your chapter about Smallville. Smallville, yes, yeah. So, and I, I watched... and I know that you mentioned Superboy in there. Yeah. So when when so the book that you're talking about is called Adapting Superman, um, edited by our friend John Dorowski. and when he proposed that i said well can i do smallville because if you've listened to the show you, you know one of the things that i love most about superheroes is when they're doing the most mundane things i like i like the non-superhero-y bits of of it and i thought why don't i do smallville and i will watch all the smallville in order to be able to um oh that's so much smallville i it had not occurred to me when i when i agreed to do this that like Tom Welling's done more Superman than any other person on the planet. Mm -hmm. I, I believe it's are... 217 hour yeah. long episodes. Oh yes, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it because like, you're like, oh, he was never Superman. Wow. But no, that show ran longer than uh, like all Chris Reed's, everything else combined. He's got the longest tenure. And then I, and I said, okay, I'll watch that. And I, since it, it's the second Superboy series, I'll also watch Superboy in order, which I'd watched, I'd seen both of them in, in their entirety you know, originally when they came out. So I, I don't think I rewatched all of Superboy for this, but I watched a fair amount of Superboy for um, for that chapter. 
plus all of Smallville, just so that I could, you know, know what I wanted to talk about when I needed to make comparisons. And then I ended up doing very minor comparisons, so I didn't need to watch as much Superboy as I as I did. But oh wow, was that an exhausting essentially summer that I spent watching oh my God. all of Superboy. <laughs> well, so we both had our summers of Superboy. Well, yeah. uh, Matt, uh, I'm gonna, do you mind if I send you my chapter? And uh, sure, sure. If, if you're interested in giving it a read. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd love it's, to. It's very much a first draft. Uh, that's much appreciated. Tell us about your summer of Superboy, Drew. Like, I mean, <laughs> how did you survive the experience? Do you feel forever changed? Uh, well, I mean, Superboy, I, I, re- I would recommend watching it because it's not... 217 hour long episodes it's, it's, like it's 60 a, or 40 it's 40. a breezy 100 episodes of 22 oh. minutes <laughs> right but That's th- still well, three, so many three seasons yeah. were there really 100 episodes wow there were four seasons four seasons um, okay yeah, yeah I think so I, through, it, I think i got through 40 or 50 of them or something like that yeah it was pretty slow goings at first but then i realized like that i need to i need to attack this the same way i attack my comp exams the same way yeah. I, I attack my grading I take the number of things I have to do, divide it by the number of days I want to do it in, and then do a daily quota. So I was doing three or four episodes a day. uh, And that's just how I started my day for like all of June and July. And and I got it done. Yeah. Yeah, You skip the intro each time. You skip the intro. You skip the closing credits. You're laughing. It's 20 minutes. It's a breeze. <laughs> and the show, the nice thing about the show is that it gets better as it goes. It does. So, like, the first season is a slog. The second season is equally a slog. And then it really picks up. Well, they changed um, Superboys. Yeah. But my cha- in my chapter, I talk about the whole thing, uh, the whole series. So awesome. uh, I tried to pick out the things that were interesting to me and develop something hopefully coherent about it that makes a case for Superboy as an interesting artifact of superhero television of the Reagan era specifically. Oh, uh, so, yeah, that was my summer. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't given it a read yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. I've been, I'm still not sure what I'm writing for the superhero TV book. I have been trying to watch Batwoman recently, thinking that I might want to write about that. Not convinced that I want to write about it yet, but <laughs> I wrote something Batwoman, brief the about it. TV series. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. recent Batwoman. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote something about it for the Walrus like a few years ago, and I'm like, well, maybe I want to like expand that. And I like, boy, that is a show that like each episode is a different genre. <laughs> You don't really know what you're going to get. Sometimes it's a horror show. And then there's like a fun episode where like, you know, she previously dated Alfred's daughter and like opens up a gay bar across the street from a homophobic restaurant. And I'm like, I'm here for this. You know, these parts of the show are fun. But uh, did you get into the season after she left? I haven't yet. I'm still in oh. the Ruby Rose season. I had, um, Batgirl's an adventure. I, 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 I've seen all of that as well. And I, I, there's some interesting, in particular, her leaving greatly affects the show. And mm-hmm. there are pivots where you're like, okay, you're doing something interesting, which is beca- because you're not bound by the comic book. And I like that. It, it's interesting. And then there are other things where it's like, okay, this plot line was clearly plotted when you thought you were going to have uh, Kate Kane yeah. as a character, yeah. <laughs> and you're just and you're just gonna slide in Ryan and just pretend nothing went. <laughs> happened and there's a lot of that so i owe it to myself to watch it until i get there to see whether that turns out to be interesting but um I'll I, keep I, you like, updated. I like the actress who plays ryan a lot and i like uh, mm-hmm. i mean the show 
this was the decline of the CW era. Um, I don't think that's a surprise, which is why they don't do any of those shows anymore. And and there are clear budgetary constraints. But yeah, like I, I but but you could tell that everyone involved in the show really cared and was trying their best. Oh, that's that's generous. I like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been I, I liked it. I mean, I watched all of them. I, yeah, yeah, I kept watching. So that was... <laughs> right. well, from the world of superhero television, let's get back to the world of comics. Um, I really want to talk about Stan Lee and his legacy, which is obviously a topic we all are going to have a lot of thoughts about. And I know Drew definitely will have thoughts about it since he's written about it before. So let's do our issue summary and then get into it. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely catch you in the center ring to the echo of raucous applause and can only assume the plot summary will be equally dazzling. Um, I should note, too, that uh, much of this summary is sourced directly from UncannyXMen.net, as I did completely run out of time to write a summary this week. We thank you so much for your efforts over there. Stan Lee introduces a flashback to the formative past of our favorite German circus acrobats, Kurt Wagner and Jemaine Sardos. When Kurt reveals to his foster sister-slash-girlfriend, Jemaine, that he is planning on leaving the circus to make a difference in the world, Jemaine gets upset until he asks her to come along with him. Excited, Jemaine tells her mother, but Margali forbids her from leaving and reveals to Jemaine her true destiny, that she will become the wielder of the soul sword. Jemaine tells her mother that she doesn't care about her destiny and decides that she will leave without her mother's permission. On her last day, Sabu, Kurt's trainer, asks Jemaine if he can stand in for her on the trapeze as it is Kurt's last performance. Jemaine agrees and Sabu warns Jemaine about defying her mother. Margali was spying on her daughter, who tells Sabu that she will leave anyway, and Margali decides a sacrifice is needed. As Jemaine packs the last of her things, Margali disguises herself as Belasco and threatens Jemaine with what would happen if she were to leave before Margali's sacrifice is made, which is the death of Sabu, who dies when the trapeze snaps. Jemaine blames herself and doesn't leave with Kurt, but stays, becoming her mother's disciple. Before they part, Kurt tells Jemaine that one day they will meet again. Okay, coming to you first, Drew, for your first impressions of this comic. I'm pretty sure it's your first time reading it. So yeah, just hit me with it. What particularly struck you about this comic? What are you looking forward to talking about? Well, I think... It's, it's now two in a row where you've just thrown me in the deep end with something that I have no context for whatsoever. <laughs> uh, well, Stan is there this, to hold your hand, yeah. Drew. I mean, come on. Well, my first impression was that uh, the Stan Lee connection is a bit of a stretch. There's really, I mean, he's on the cover, the first page, and then the last page. <laughs> And that's basically it. So uh, not much Stanley, less than I was expecting, given uh, why I was invited on the show. That's my first impression. This is true. This is true. I always think that it's more of it because it was like part of this whole event in which he was like doing these intros and stuff. But yeah, I was still curious about, I mean, we'll get into it, but I was still curious about how that frames the entire story and like what kind of feeling of nostalgia an issue like this is going for. But anyway, I'm interrupting your first impressions. Please continue. Well, make no mistake. I I will still have things to say, I'm sure. And the other uh, nice thing about this particular issue being read by me this particular week is that I'm preparing for, unlike Mav, I haven't started teaching yet. I start teaching next week and I'm teaching a horror film class oh, for the first time. And I decided amazing. to start Very with, cool. with Todd Browning's Freaks okay. uh, yeah. from 1932. So, you know, when we're talking about the circus, we're talking about the freak show, we're talking about carnival barkers uh, like Stan Lee in this issue. Uh, I've got context for that. I've got connections I can make. So, you know, if you if podcast listeners want to do some homework and spend the 62 minutes to watch Todd Browning's Freaks in addition to reading this issue then they will be fully equipped to understand what 
whatever I will say about it. Oh, yeah. I recommend people do that anyway. But um, yeah, let me pick sure. up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav, and we'll get into it a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, Andrew, how are you feeling about this one? Uh, pretty good. Um, I'm continually not a fan of Rob, in particular, with female characters. Um, but the thing that I was really kind of interested and excited about this issue was I really like the artwork, like just the sort of minimalist style with those color shade backgrounds that usually indicate that everybody was under a time crunch. But here I find it works really well uh, for the, like the circus context and for the broad emotional strokes that are being developed. So I don't know. I, th this was one that took me aback a little uh, in terms of how much I enjoyed the visuals. I do, too. I mean, clearly I painted a panel from it so i really enjoy the art in this issue as well because it's like it's doing that nondescript retro thing like it doesn't yeah. look like a comic from the 60s or 70s but it's like no. doing a quote-unquote retro thing which mm -hmm. i think is again interesting in terms of like what nostalgia is this supposed to be conjuring because you know if we're, if we're conjuring nightcrawler's origin story that's not from the silver age he's not a silver age character and yet we have stan here like trying to do kind of a silver age frame for this but uh but anyway i find the art yeah like very like clean and romancy in ways that are very mm -hmm. sort of appropriate to the tone of this story but um anyway for someone who's talked about this comic so much already i clearly have too much to say but anyway andrew go ahead well even like the the negative space for the trapeze mm -hmm. scenes it was really effective i just i don't know like, there there was something very simple about like it almost reminds me a little bit of like a um um a mignola with with less line um mm -hmm. i don't know I, I was enjoying i was really enjoying how about you mav how are you feeling about it uh this quite possibly is uh rob's finest work on the series yeah uh, <laughs> I, I, I would probably I, agree <laughs> yeah it's um i i'm not gonna say it's the best comic ever it does not fit the character of how i want Jemaine, um, because that's what she calls herself throughout yeah. this issue, but it's not who I see Amanda as having been during that time in her life, but I don't care because I'm a person who's not all that invested in continuity. I mean, we, we just talked about how the fact that I love Smallville and I love Superboy and, you know, for that Lois and Clark, all for their re own reasons, and they're all very different Superman, and I think you can do that. So this is not the way I imagine Nightcrawler leaving the circus and what his relationship with Amanda was there. Like, I, I, I like to think that they were a little more antagonistic than this. It's very lovey-dovey. It is entirely the wrong origin for the Soul Sword, but I, yeah. you know, <laughs> but like, I, you know, like, at this point in Marvel history, they they just weren't dealing with that. So uh, so I'm just sort of I've got to read this and go, all right, what is this story in the context of the story you're telling, not the story that I want you to be telling? And I think it's kind of good. I, I, I hear what you're saying about the Stanley introduction, Drew, but like that's just how the flashback event was like that. It wasn't great you know it was kind of a it was a very gimmicky thing and i also really like the artwork i think that what we've got here does it look like a silver age book no it looks like rob haynes and casey jones said what would we have drawn like if we were drawing in silver age and 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 i can really feel the casey jones influence here now it's not true what you would have really ended up with was you would have been trying to draw like you know you would have tr been trying to draw in the marvel style or you would have been fired <laughs> so so it's not honest but like i appreciate the swing 
And um, that's actually kind of what the entire flashback event was. So like if you go back and look at like the Generation X one, which is actually pretty good. It's, um, you know, it also doesn't actually look like a Silver Age book. It looks like a alternate universe Silver Age book where you are allowed to have personality. So, 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 I mean, for what this is as an off week, as I, I mean, we've talked before about what annuals are and why they exist. And for something that is by definition, a fill in comic, I, I think it's fun and enjoyable and, and, you know, and it's a nice story. Yes. They might be slightly out of character, but it is a nice love story. Albeit somewhat predictable about people being set, held, held apart by a meddling parent. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I should have a stronger opinion about whether they're in character or not. But to be honest, Amanda is so different in so many different comics <laughs> that I don't think I have a strong sense of who she is Fair. or who she or who she should be. Well, I have more of a strong sense of who she should be because I have a more of an idea in my head of who I would like her to be. And then I sort of pick and choose different parts of her and assemble them into a version of her that I prefer. But um, <laughs> that's what you're forced to do when a character is written inconsistently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a strong sense of that. But um, let's talk about the, the Stanley thing off the top since, of course, he's the beginning of the issue. And then we'll get into some more stuff having to do with Kurt and Amanda's characters and what this flashback kind of does does for us in terms of potentially filling out their backstory so i'll come back to you for it drew as i mentioned at the end of your bio you have a really great chapter in make ours marvel about stan's cameos and yeah i'll do the always horrible question of asking you to kind of explain your your general thesis there and why you wanted to explore that topic and what makes it interesting well i mean so it actually wasn't the first thing i pitched to matt for the collection but he didn't like my first idea so (laughs) I, i came up with this and uh, I was glad that I did. It was better than my first idea. So, you know, trust a strong editor is the uh, mm-hmm. is the the message there. So, I mean, Matt's book came out in 2014. I'm not sure that I have read the piece oh since God. it was published. So, was it, it was fun for ago? me to revisit something from nine years ago. Yeah. Oh uh, God. So, <laughs> and I had that wonderful experience of like, who's the brilliant person that wrote this? This is so well written. I love reading it. Uh, <laughs> I was completely divorced from the reality that it was me. Just like, love it. It was like reading something new for the first time. So, but it's fresh in my head because I just reread it. So, the basic argument of the piece is that Stanley's cameos in Marvel films, not just in the MCU, but, um, you know, starting with the trial of the Incredible Hulk in the late 80s and then, you know, from X Men onward. So, in the Fox and the Sony and everything else, not just Marvel Studios films. The basic argument is that Stanley's cameos, in addition to being in jokes, like the kind of Easter eggs that they sprinkle throughout these movies you know they they serve to connect the films back to the comic book source material and as a sort of easter egg at this in joke for knowing audiences uh to feel good about getting but they also speak to stan lee as a kind of authorial figure uh, within the marvel comics universe so i sort of looked at them in the context of the stories and tried to categorize them and you know I guess I had some fun with it. Uh, it was it's a it's a it's a fun little piece. I recommend it. But the main comparison that I draw throughout the chapter is to Alfred Hitchcock, which makes sense mm, in terms of yeah. uh, cameos and a body of work being connected through, among other things, cameo appearances by a particular figure. 
And, you know, Hitchcock is someone who obviously, in addition to being a film director, also is someone with a well-developed media persona of his own that is not just something that he developed through his cameos, but more specifically through the ways that his films were advertised. He had very long expository trailers as the host of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. You know, so Hitchcock's cameos function as this kind of fourth wall breaking moment where you are sort of taken out of the diegesis for a moment and are confronted with the author of the film and it becomes a kind of game. And Lee's cameos function kind of similarly, but because he's not the author of the films, it's also a bit more complicated than that. So, you know, in the piece, I go through all the cameos he'd made in all the Marvel movies up to that point, which is 2014, and categorize them by the different sort of types of characters he's playing and sort of teasing out what kind of extra diegetic functions they're serving. So what do these cameos tell us about Lee as an author, as a laborer, as a symbolic figurehead for Marvel as an enterprise, uh, and even surprisingly often as a horny old man? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, the, the appearance of him in this issue as this kind of huckster figure, this carnival barker, is actually kind of in keeping with his persona more generally. So, you know, I think uh, it it made sense for me to revisit that piece uh, in anticipation of of coming on the pod for for this issue. I think uh, it was a good connection, Anna. (laughs) Well, yeah, I thought of you right away because of the Stanley connection. But yeah, I don't know. Let's get into it a little bit more because we all have obviously experiences with the persona of Stanley and what that means and... I mean, I'm sure what it's meant to us throughout our lives, because, you know, we've definitely talked on the pod before when we did the episode about Steve Ditko about, you know, creator Mm. rights issues and the complicated legacy of Stan Lee. But at the same time, no one can argue that his persona and his voice has been indelibly imprinted on the history of Marvel Comics. And it's something that obviously we've all been in contact with, whether through something like him appearing on page in Marvel Comics, which he does as early as Fantastic Four number 10 in a really Mm -hmm. wonderful cameo where he and Jack are trying to figure out... (laughs) trying to figure out a new villain for Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom shows up and thank God he's still alive and he tells them (laughs) how he came back from the dead so that they can save the book. Just one of my favorite comics of all time. So I'm sure we all have experiences sort of interacting with Stan Lee's persona in the pages of Marvel Comics. Let's just talk about that a little bit as a way to get into it. And, you know, I'll start with you, Andrew. You know, do you have memories of interacting with Stan's voice? Yeah, I, I think I've actually taught Stan's voice in a class on marketing and another class in um, narrative voice. Um, it's it's distinctive. It, it's a beautiful piece of branding. I, I think he was riffing on the old DC comics uh, with the idea of the witch, the crone, and the crypt keeper or whatever it was. Um, in order to create cohesion uh, across the line and to give it an identity where you would buy a new comic just because it was a Marvel comic. Uh, and Stan Lee was sort of the stamp of approval for that. But but I think for me, I don't know, I, I'm more on the Kirby side. We've had this conversation, as you said before. That was always a business strategy, right? It's not just a way to create cohesion. It's a way to create ownership. And we see that being doubled down constantly. Uh, again, with this Stanley documentary and all the sort of uproar surrounding it. Stan Lee's role in Marvel was absolutely enormous, but there's been an entire literally billion dollar machine designed to sort of use that image of Stan Lee, that that falsified persona that he 
portrays very, very well in order to solidify Marvel and Disney's claim to these intellectual properties. And I really struggle when I kind of see it make its way from outside the comic into the comic. You know what I mean? Like, I find this intro infuriating for that reason. Mm. Um, And I get why other people wouldn't. And again, I'm not trying to cheap shot Stan Lee. Stan Lee was brilliant. He was a good writer and by like most all accounts, kind of a good man. But it's just, I, I think about the people who got left behind and there yep. were a lot of them and that bothers me. Yep. And, you know, it very much feeds into something that's very antithetical to comics and especially work for higher comics, which is, you know, the myth of the lone creative genius, right? The right. idea that the he myth created the Marvel this whole, you know, the myth that everybody got along and we're all peers and we're all friends, which was clearly not true. And mm. uh, anyway, Mav, like, did you want to weigh in memories of Stan? I'm a little more generous towards it, but that said, Andrew's absolutely right. Um, I think Stan is a fascinating figure. I think that he, as a creator, is not as important as as obviously the public at large, the regular people um, who see him. Stan Lee invented the Marvel Universe. I, you know, the random fact that people know, like he, he's not that. But I also think that in retrospect, more comic book academia and Aka fans tend to be a little more harsh on him as though he did nothing than than is appropriate as well. I've read Jack Kirby stuff by himself. I'm a fan, but Jack needs an editor and Jack needs, you know, Jack needs Stan's voice to push back. And I've read Stan stuff without Jack and not as good either. There's a good partnership there. And it, while it is unfair to the legacy of Jack Kirby, and it entirely is to the legacy of Jack Kirby, that Stan tends to get all the all the popular credit. I do think that there is something to to the character of Stan Lee that becomes indicative of this era of storytelling and an era that starts in the 60s and goes well into the 90s and to the 21st century, if you're including the films. I think that that character... Uh, Stan Lee, the character, is very important to the DNA of what Marvel is beyond what Stanley Lieber, the man, is. And I think mm-hmm. that that I think that it's shortchanging to pretend that he's not. And I also think that it gets complicated by the fact that yes, we talk about that now, particularly with Kirby's contributions. But you know, there's also a Ditko around. There's also Busima yeah. brothers. There's you know, like there's a lot of people there that aren't even getting the credit that Kirby does every color right. ever <laughs> you know yeah. like like the, like that like letters like these these things matter and, it, and it's a complicated it, it is a complicated question that i i think does deserve being studied but i also think that there is value towards being the face of the company and in a way that um as comic book scholars, we tend to stick with the comic bookiness of it, but but I'm not really a comic book scholar. I'm a pop culture scholar, so I see Stan, and I'm like, yeah, he's doing the same thing Walt Disney did. He's doing the same thing that later Steve right. Jobs would do. And every criticism that one could make about Stan, I can also apply to the character that is Steve Jobs or the character that is Walt Disney <laughs> or the character that is Bill Gates or, you know, like, the, like it's this not is not flattering company, man. Yeah. Intentionally so. Right. But, yeah, yeah. It, but, uh, but also none of those corporate giants that run this world now exist without that character guiding them to where they are. 
and you know one can talk about you know i can't come up with an example that is not you know a nerdy white man <laughs> right <laughs> but uh, like i can't but that's but that still matters and i think that there's a, i think there's a whole thing to discuss there beyond just oh is it fair or is it not i think there's a right why did we allow it to happen as people well yeah and i mean i just it's always a difficult conversation i always feel myself like tripping over my words to make sure that i'm not sounding like i'm taking a side in this or whatever or neglecting all of these these real world things about credit and you know obviously stan making all of the money and so many other people not making the money and yet when I think about Marvel Comics and I think about the identity of Marvel Comics, I mean, there's a reason I said Stan's voice as a way to introduce mm -hmm. this question, because his voice is just so imprinted on that Marvel brand. And I mean, think mm -hmm. about the way he functions as the carnival barker here. And I think it speaks a little bit to sort of like the Teflon nature of kind of his brand, like because of the cultivated self-reflexivity of it. You know, like Jack Kirby criticized Stan Lee for being a carnival barker in his fourth world stuff he has this whole character funky flashman funky who's flash a parody man. of like stan lee who's very much like that right who's just you know a corporate shill greedy no ideas of his own all of those things that stan gets criticized for and yet i mean this isn't stan writing this comic obviously but the fact that the sort of like brand identity of stan lee could be a carnival barker and embrace that and it's a self-reflexive gesture and yet it's embracing the critique in a way that makes him immune to the critique i think that that's really essential to kind of the genius of that brand because mm -hmm. i mean it's so many mm -hmm. things that are part of like the Marvel way of doing comics, something like the No Prize, right? Something that is so, and again, I see so much of the legacy of EC Comics and the fan culture there. I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Andrew. And yet so many things like that are so tied into Stan Lee's voice and the identity that he brought to the company. So when I think about my love for Marvel Comics, I don't find it at all possible or feasible in any respect to divorce it from sort of the idea of Stan Lee, the persona of Stan Lee, the voice of Stan Lee, you know, that jokey self-reflexivity, mm -hmm. that bringing readers into the conversation, being mm -hmm. on the soapbox that kind of thing it's so essential to the marvel brand so yeah it's impossible right like we can definitely criticize all the behind the scenes stuff but we can't deny that he did shape this company and the idea of this company and the nature of telling comics in the marvel universe so indelibly but um i should come back to you for it drew because we've we've been rambling on and i really wanted to hear your expertise on this a little bit too i mean can you tell us about some of your kind of interactions with the persona of stan lee over the years i mean what's kind of your your personal what's kind of some of the some of the personal nature of those interactions for you yeah, I mean, I I really am coming up blank. Like as like you guys all spoke to everything that I would want to speak to, but all of everything I know about that is from like the research I did for this chapter that, that we were talking about. It's not something that was like I don't think of Stan Lee as a crucial figure of my childhood or like yeah. really someone I interacted with a lot aside from like, I know that this is the guy who co-created Spider-Man, but I, I feel like even when I was younger, having an awareness that Steve Ditko was the one who designed the costume and that was really the thing mm -hmm. that I cared the most about. So, you know, I think he's an interesting figure for all of the reasons that have already been discussed and, you know, one that we should rightly feel ambivalent about and should probably resist the kinds of hagiographic treatments yeah. uh, that we get in that like documentary for instance uh, that was mentioned but like one of the things that I found when I was when I took that like a close look at the cameos was that they were not 
universally hagiographic in that way. They were often like pointing to the the gap between sort of the big claims of his authorship and the actual sort of his actual status at the company, which, you know, for by the time that X-Men comes out in 2000, like he's not been writing comics regularly for what, two decades by that point, probably? Yeah. More. Like, um, yeah. Stan stops writing regularly. He's writing on occasion, but Stan stops writing regularly in the 70s. The the yeah, arc, I was going to say like around 1970 even. 70 71. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the arc of Stan Lee's prominent. Now he started writing comics originally when he's like 14 or 15 years old. So he writes for a long time. But the arc of his prominence as the architect of the Marvel universe is like 10 11 years long. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a much shorter period than people think it is. So it's like from the early 60s through like 71. Well, and a big part of that, re the reason why he hangs around is precisely because of issues like this, where, you know, his face is on the cover as big as anybody else's. And, you know, like you couldn't have, like, I don't know anything about this flashback event uh, other than this issue, but it sounds to me as though Stan Lee appears in all of them as this kind yeah. of framing device. Basically so, as this character. Like, yeah. yeah, basically he's a guy who him. Yeah, I don't think you could do that with any other comic book writer ever. Like you couldn't do it with Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. You couldn't do it with Bob Kane. You couldn't do it with anybody. Stan Lee is the only one that has any kind of popular cultural saturation as a figure that you would recognize at all. Like so, he's unique in comics in in that respect, largely because of his own self-aggrandizing and the, the his, you know hucksterism. To go back to that word, um, yeah. But it yeah. is that that thing where like embracing the hucksterism almost like it's not that it elevates it above criticism, but that's sort of the technique, right? Like it's this. Well, I know what I'm doing, and it's all a joke, so it's fine. Because that, you know, I mentioned the no prize earlier. I mean, that's sort of part of the Marvel brand, right? Like if we acknowledge our flaws and make a joke out of it, then not only does it involve the audience and make them feel like they're participating and in on the joke, it also mm -hmm. makes us immune to criticism because we don't have to mm -hmm. make the continuity work because when it doesn't, it's fun and it's funny and we're all in on it and we can turn it into a joke that <laughs> enables a stronger fan community. And it's like, God, that's genius marketing. It's like so good and it's so effective. And it goes yeah. all the way back to Fantastic Four and I don't have a note in front of me so i'm going to say off the top of my head it's annual number three it's the wedding of reed and sue um so we're talking 1968 and 66 or somewhere in there and the joke in that among other things there's a story going on but a, a recurring joke throughout the issue is that stan and jack are trying to get into the wedding as the creators and they can't get in because they're too lame like he's he and Jack, you know, because Jack was appearing in books as well, though Stan became a bigger name. He can't get in because he is doing the disarming thing of, no, I'm making fun of myself. It's a it's a it's a popular comedian thing. You know, like you said, it makes you immune to criticism because you're in on the joke yourself. Yeah. And I mean, I mentioned the Fantastic Four number 10 one, which, you know, the the wedding, the wedding cameo kind of builds on that. But in that one, you know, they're unable to come up with a new villain and like they have a little joke about it. Oh, this is false face. It's going to be so great. And, you know, it's this self-reflexive thing where you're bringing, bringing people into the process of production you see stan and jack well in a fantasy world like a fantasy version of their collaboration right in this office trying to come up with characters together which again was not how that worked the fantasy of the marvel bullpen as we mentioned earlier and yet you know making fun of their own writer's block 
and then using that as a way to tell a new story. I mean, it's it's brilliant. It's wonderful, and I love it to pieces. Despite like all of these all of these problems with his legacy, and that's why it's so hard to separate those things. I do think it's interesting that that carries forward to his. I want to say today, but he hasn't. He obviously hasn't made a film cameo since you know basically since he died with Endgame. But he appears in these things today with that same level of drew you even said sometimes he's the horny old man right like it's the same it's the same level of he can be the sage guy giving it giving advice in into the spider-verse or he can just be a goofy dude in like um trying to hook up with like a stripper and i can't remember which one that is like he like it's it's a thing that he does in these films and he's not writing them but he wasn't writing this either in 1997 this is just like a we decided or they had decided marvel had decided that there's this universal character of stan lee that you can toss in something just as easily as you can i don't know irving forbush or you know, for that matter, you know, any of the other any of the regular Marvel characters, right? Yeah, like yeah. you can use a Spider-Man and there's a way to write Spider-Man if you want to toss him in your in your copy of Wolverine. Well, there's a way to write Stan Lee as well. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he would be considered a character with like name and face recognition equal to the characters within the Marvel Universe that to the point where they're doing this whole event and he's appearing on the cover as a selling point of the event i mean that's really striking in terms of brand identity and in terms of his legacy at this time when he was like really not involved with marvel at all he'd already become like a mythical figure by 1997 i mean certainly before 1997 i would say but oh yeah so he's so ubiquitous i think that uh, this is 97 when this series comes out but he basically does this same event at DC um, like four years later. It's like 2001 where he where DC hires him for a month to write like a bunch of fill in issues for their series for their series. Uh, it's called Just Imagine. And basically it's just imagine if Stan Lee had invented Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman or The Flash. And it's his version of the characters with that name they're i mean in many cases the only connection is that they have a similar name like um you know the, the batman character is a guy in a bat suit so he's like you know he's closer in connection to what the what batman is but the flash character is a, a teenage girl who has the power of flight and light generation she has nothing to do with like the speedster at all but they they were trading purely on the idea that hey stan lee is known as the iconic brain behind marvel what if he were the iconic brain behind dc instead ignoring entirely the fact that they knew full well that he hadn't created anything for marvel other than ravage in like um in 30 years at that point and everybody's going who's ravage yeah look it up <laughs> All right, let's talk about some equally equally mythical characters in Kurt Wagner. Kurt Wagner and Amanda slash Jemaine Sefton. Well, Jemaine Sardos slash Amanda Sefton, uh, a woman of many names and identities, <laughs> as we alluded to earlier. But um, I'll come to you for it, Drew. I know that you're being dropped in here without the same kind of connection to these characters that we have. But at the same time, it is kind of a fuller view of the backstory of these characters than we've had previously. So in some ways... It can function as an introduction to the characters and yeah like i'm curious to hear your thoughts about kind of the nature of their world and the nature of the romance here and i know you had thoughts about the circus 
curious. So yeah, like, what did you feel like you learned about these characters? Yeah, I mean, I was really thinking about the comic in relation to Freaks, Mm -hmm. um, because you do get a lot of the same kind of character types, obviously. Um, So with the you know, the acrobats with uh, Jermaine and Kurt as the sort of central love connection here in this issue um, is kind of similar to Freaks where you have, yeah. it is the it is the acrobat Cleopatra who is the, the villain of the movie. One of the, the, the Hans character who is a little person falls for the, the acrobat uh, who he says is the most beautiful big woman he's ever seen. And uh, so the acrobat, the able-bodied acrobat is the, is the villain really. Um, and, you know, Kurt obviously heroic in, in this context, but also he has the, the, these, you know, his, he's hiding his freakishness and there is a sense of the, like you do see the, the quote unquote freak show characters throughout this as well. And there is, I mean, in freaks and to a lesser extent here, there is like that division between the sort of the able-bodied circus performers and the freak show performers. Mm-hmm. Um, here you get more, in both cases, in freaks as well as in here, you do get this emphasis on the community of of the circus folk. And, you know, more of an emphasis on that, on the interpersonal relationships that uh, normalize these characters for the readers. Whereas in Freaks, we don't get any of the actual performance. We do get some actual performance here. And obviously that is some of the the highest moments of drama as well. Uh, these sort of acrobatic feats that we get uh, depicted I mean, as you as I said before, these are characters that are largely new to me, Nightcrawler aside. So I don't have a tremendous amount of insight about them. And I was really sort of looking more so at it in relation to freaks and seeing like how what role the, the you know, you have these uh, conjoined twins that play a, a part. I think there's a human skeleton mm-hmm. uh, in the background or maybe she's depicted as a con- contortionist, fire breathing person. Uh, they get some some comic mileage out of these out of these characters. Just maybe, as well. maybe to that point, the the, the two headed clown named Kierkegaard, which is a good riff on oh the theory of double mindedness by Kierkegaard. I was not expecting that uh, in Rab's script, but there it was. Is it? You know, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it feels like they're trying to be clever with all of it. So who knows? It like, maybe yeah, it just been a thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him credit for it. Yeah, yeah totally. I, mean, I was interested. I was interested in the contrast between the portrayal of Kurt and Amanda and the other circus folk, in the sense that there are interesting gestures of normalization here. You know, there's the scene where we see, you know, some of the other freaks, you know, having a bath, and it's played very normatively, like it's just a casual encounter, and it expresses the intimacy of the space in which everybody's like literally sharing bathwater <laughs> and like that's just like the nature of this found family which you know is a found family of quote-unquote freaks that precedes the found fan family of the x-men right and yet there's other things where they're distanced from kurt and amanda because their comedy like their comedic relief whereas kurt and amanda despite kurt's quote-unquote freakishness get to be beautiful right, right. there's a clear separation in terms of like mm. agency and like humanity between kurt and amanda and not just because they're characters we know but i think that that's sort of emphasized again by the comedy relief value of the rest of the circus folk versus 
once again, Kurt and Amanda, who are given this like serious, romantic, dramatic plot line that is quite opposed to that comic relief element. So like, yeah, I don't know. That's one of the elements that I've always found intriguing about this issue. I mean, I love seeing these little glimpses of what their life with the circus was, because I think in terms of the characterization of Nightcrawler, that's really important. But Amanda, too, in terms of her affection for Nightcrawler. I mean, when you see Amanda kiss you know, one of the freaks and like be really loving and respectful toward them. I think that speaks to the ways that she is loving and respectful towards Kurt and one of the people who is not afraid mm -hmm. of his appearance, one of the people who like sees him for who he is and doesn't see that division between what he looks like and who he is. And she's someone that's grown up in this environment and grown up with him. So I think that speaks to their bond in that respect. But also, you know, speaking to the self-acceptance of Nightcrawler, right? He grew up in this world in which he was accepted by other quote unquote freaks. And again, that sets him up to, to have this found family life with the X-Men. But as we've talked about many times with that character, right? He's the Marvel monster who doesn't hate being a monster. And when we see the, a little bit of the context he comes from and how comfortable he is within this community, I do find that important to fleshing out some of how Kurt became the person that he is because we've had very little of it in the pages yeah. of Marvel comics like up to this point and there's been subsequent stories that have gone back to his circus days a little bit although most of those are like every time Kurt goes back to the circus and we already had an episode like this previously when we did the Marvel Comics Presents issue every time Mar Kurt goes back to the circus everybody dies like all of his circus <laughs> friends have died three separate times <laughs> in Marvel Comics <laughs> I don't know how they keep coming back to life only to be killed again but it has happened three times <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, this is like sort of despite the fact that someone else also dies and Margali orchestrates the death of someone to manipulate Amanda into staying behind at the circus and breaking up Kurt and Amanda, which is super dark. And I always yeah. kind of forget that that's what actually happened because it seems like such a light issue with the style of the artwork and even the Stanley introducing it, which gives it that vintage feel and yet super, super dark if you like think about the plot for two seconds but like yeah, i don't know as people who've been podcasting about excalibur for 120 episodes i mean how are you guys feeling about it andrew and mav like do you find that this provides insight into the characters of kurt and amanda i know mav you already said that you find that they're mischaracterized but how are you feeling about it andrew and then i'll come back to you mav i'm in the same boat i, I think for me the the issue i'm having is reconciling the two points that you made anna um the way that it, it does portray this found family in a way that humanizes kurt it makes perfect sense, right? With who he is and how he views human beings very sincerely. For me, the problem is that the, again, so-called freaks are overdetermined by their freakishness. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't get any moments of genuine humanization. They're, they're there to demonstrate the weird thing that they can do uh, and to, um, I guess, validate Kurt um, through their affection towards him. Um, so like I want a little bit more there, but that's one of those things where you're like, uh, you, you kind of get that, that it would be hard to do uh, again, especially with the time constraints that Rob is under here. Um, so it's not quite working for me as much as this is working for you, but I see the way you read it and, and that's how I want to read it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like I think oh, that's yeah. the intent. Um, and, and I love that as a way to, again, I, I think the most fascinating question about Kurt is how did he get to be this so um, um, genuine uh, mm -hmm. as a person? Uh, so if we're going to explore his backstory, that's what I would love to see. So I, I really appreciate what the um, writer is trying to do. And maybe this is where I'm on a different page than you and Mav uh, in terms of enjoying this issue. To me, it just didn't come across the way that I think it was in intended to come across. Oh, no, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work to kind of make this work within my headcanon. And I mean, one of the things I would underscore with that, like you made such a good point about the freaks 
that are, are not Kurt are like just here to show what they can do, which is very much the function of freaks, right? That's part of the dehumanization right. of a freak show. But the way Nightcrawler is portrayed in this comic plays against that, right? Because he mm-hmm. is this like quote unquote freak who has these monstrous features, and like that's part of the context of the issue he's hiding as well, and yet protected by his status within the circus, and yet is portrayed so romantically here and so sexily yeah. here. Like I alluded to that kiss earlier, which you know I have the panel that that it painted on my wall. I mean that's a sexy as hell kiss. He's got like his beautiful cascading hair like coming down his forehead with his high cheekbones and his full lips as she's leaning in with her very pink, very full lips to kiss him with her blonde hair cascading over her forehead. I mean it's sexy <laughs> as hell. And I mean that's very different than how the freaks are portrayed, right? I mean I mentioned that you know Amanda kisses. Um, is it the strong guy or the fire guy? Anyway, she kisses him. On- it's, the, it's the strong guy. It's, it's, it's house. house. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. She kisses him on the chin, and that's played for comedy, right? And you can see how much the contrast is is sort of becoming evident there. Like Kurt is humanized through his romance ability, whereas the rest of these freaks don't get that humanization. Anyway, Mav, uh, do you think it teaches us anything interesting about Kurt and Amanda's backstory? Yes. <laughs> um, okay. I'll do. I'll do Amanda first, just because I want to clarify the thing that I said about not not liking how she's portrayed. That's I don't. It's not that I don't like how she's portrayed. It's that this isn't the way that I normally think of her. She yeah. is very perfect, innocent girl next doorish. Like she's mm-hmm. she's Mary Sueish to borrow a term that I usually hate in this mm-hmm. in in this comic. Like she is. There is nothing wrong with her, and the Amanda that I like has a little bit of a bitch to her. Like, I, I like that she's not, I like that she's, you know, kind of biting and kind of uh, doesn't take nonsense and she's not perfect. I, I love her for her imperfections. I will agree with you. She's so tonally inconsistent from writer to writer that, you know, whatever, right? Like, yeah. so, so that's kind of where I'm usually at with her. Um, but I also don't care that much about canon. So I like this story for what it does do a lot i'm in a slightly different place than you in regards to their relationship i think because um i see their relationship as indicative i think which which i think is what you're saying um anna of the fact that amanda does not care amanda lives in a universe where uh, or so i should say jermaine at this point lives in a universe where everybody is a freak so she doesn't see them that way. She's got Marilyn Munster syndrome, right? She is, she is just, you know, these are the people that I love. And so I don't think she's, I think she sees Kurt as beautiful. And I think she sees House as beautiful and all the other freaks as beautiful in their own way. And in a way, it's that aspect is something that I've enjoyed about late era you know, 2010s and till now X-Men comics, which is there are so many mutants around that people will just think that someone who looks monstrous to us is beautiful. You've got characters in Krakoa who everybody's like, oh, they're so hot, except for, yeah, I get that they're green and have scales and whatever. It, It doesn't matter, right? Because their standards work differently than ours star trek did this a lot you know you're when you have that much variation in form you cannot just be looking for a white blonde blue-eyed you know 
six foot two, whatever, right? Like, it, like you have to like sort of move on. So, so I like that about Amanda. Where I think it becomes interesting is inside that world. I don't think Kurt is being less freakish because of how he looks. I think this is trying to make the argument that he sees himself as part of the freaks, just like everybody else does. Amanda sees herself that way, but Kurt is aware that Amanda is not. And he makes a comment where he's like, people like us, the freaks and I, we cannot walk the world mm -hmm. the way Amanda does. So he's he is self-aware where Kurt loses it is he seems to not be aware at all of the class divide between himself and the freaks. Like he understands that he does not look human, but he does not seem to understand that as an acrobat, as a trapeze artist, he appears to be on a higher strata of the circus. He and Amanda both than the guys that are the sideshow act. He thinks that he's one of them in a way that I don't think he's aware that there is a differentiation. And I think that mm. matters because I think that that is a, that's very indicative of the way um, otherism works in our society, right? Like, so like people, people treat being other as though it's a binary. Well, okay, I'm black, so I must know what it's like to be a woman. I'm a woman, so I must know what it's like to be black. Or I must, you know, I'm gay, so I must know what it's like to be trans. Or I'm trans, so I must know what it's like to be asexual. All of right. them are different. They all have their own little idiosyncrasies. And I'm intentionally trying to not create a hierarchy because I think we tend to treat it like it's a hierarchy when in reality it's just different. And I think there is social acceptance within groups that sort of, because we're humans, generates this hierarchy. And I think this comic does a very good job of presenting that. That's why I think it's mm. Rob's finest work here. I think he's, he's doing a very, very good job of saying... Even if Kurt is a good person, even if Amanda is a good person, they're not actively creating this world, but that world still exists and you can see it there. Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to some of the fondness I have for this issue in terms of it's a wonderfully rich context to base a fan fiction on. <laughs> like, it's giving you yes. a lot yeah. that you could, yeah. like, build other stories on. Like, I'd love to see the further adventures of these people in this place and see some of these possibilities built on. We don't necessarily get that here, but, like, it, it's probably my favorite version of, like, flashing back to Kurt's days with the circus. There's not a lot of competition there, so I think yeah. it's probably my favorite one. But um, let's go to some final thoughts. I'm sure that we've each got something that we want to flash back to that we didn't get a chance to talk about as much as we would like. So I'll come back to you first, Andrew. Anything from this comic that you'd like to circle back to that we didn't get a chance to talk about much? Yeah, just maybe even related to your last point. I'm finding that I'm experiencing this like weird fatigue of, we talked about all these versions of Amanda, right? Where they keep mm -hmm. teeing her up to be this kind of character or this kind of character. Mm -hmm. And I keep being like, yeah, I'm on board. Do something with that. Do something with that. And then instead of doing something with that, they just tear up again. You know what I mean? Uh, they keep walking it back and then setting her up to be something else. And that doesn't pay off either. So I, I, like, I can't think of a comics character who's had this much buildup uh, and relatively little payoff. It seems like a lot of writers are really interested in Amanda, um, but nobody has the follow through with her. And I'm finding that increasingly frustrating. Yeah, that is completely fair. That is completely fair. I, I feel that a lot with her too. It's like, she'll show up and then you're like, oh, this character is exciting. And then... <laughs> <laughs> the next time she shows up, she's different. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, Mav, anything you want to circle back to? Um, I love seeing her in the Nightcrawler costume. I think it works. Oh boy, yes! that's what it's I was going to talk about. It's adorable. Okay, I'll leave it for you because I, I, I do. I, I'll just. I, I do think it's adorable. I like that seeing her in the Nightcrawler costume and seeing Kurt in them in the same way as the if they're doing the thing that Robin does in the Batman mythos. Oh, this was Dick Grayson's circus costume, which is a stupid idea, but whatever. Because <laughs> um, now everybody knows who he is. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but um, fun fact, that's, that's literally how oh, Tim Drake yeah. figures it out. He's just like, yeah. oh, you're wearing the outfit that I saw you wear. <laughs> you must have been Robin because apparently so Bruce funny. is an idiot. Um, but but, um, but I, I love that aspect of this. It's just it's it's fun because it doesn't because Kurt doesn't need a secret identity. It doesn't matter. So therefore, um, I like that like he it explains his comfort in the outfit that this is just the thing that he grew up wearing. It was just his circus costume. And I like that. The, I like the connection it makes between her and him um, by doing that. What I don't like is everything that has to do with the soul sword and Belasco, because with everything yeah. I've ever said about not caring about continuity. Um, and I, I mostly <laughs> don't. It's also just dumb in this. Like it's not how the soul sword works. I'm fine with them changing and making the soul sword work differently. But the, nothing's done with it here. It's just a, hey, you know the soul sword. You know how it works? Well, that's going to be the major plot point here, except for I'm going, but that's not how, like, you're asking me to do the work because this book does nothing with it. So you're asking me to fill in the gaps of who the soul sword and Belasco are, but they're not super popular characters. So most people couldn't fill in those gaps. And I'm the guy who can. And so I know it's wrong. So it's like, what the hell are you actually doing? And that's and that's frustrating for me because it feels like that's the that's not just because I don't like when people do magic wrong, but also I don't think he's doing anything at all with it other than the fact that he's he's saying, you know, how Mag Magali and 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 Blasco are ancient enemies that have been fighting all throughout time. Right. You know that. No. Don't. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so, so it that's the that's like taking a shortcut that doesn't pay off at all. And and I don't know how to fill in the gap because even even having the benefit of knowing the future, it doesn't work. Certainly, it no. didn't work in the past. No, this is this plot is going to continue for twelve years um, mm -hmm. <laughs> in the pages of stories starring Nightcrawler and Amanda, and it gets confusing because like. In the Roberto Aguirre Sacasa series, we go back to a bunch of these plot points, but then it's like but Mephisto that Kurt is like mad at. <laughs> so it's like they're not Velasco. I know. <laughs> and like the end of that series ends with like this teaser for like this supernatural mystical war that like Kurt and Amanda are going to be major players in, which obviously has never happened. <laughs> but maybe just, we're going to get back to it. <laughs> it just Okay, so really quick. The Soul Sword is important to me because it is yeah. a fundamentally interesting part of Ilyana's, uh, of Ilyana's mm -hmm. personality that this 14-year-old girl who grew up in hell figured out a way out by sacrificing 60% of her soul. That's mm -hmm. dark and it's harsh and it's it's like and and it informs everything that that character is and i get that she they weren't going to do anything with her at this point because she was dead but um everything that that character is from that point for the next 30 years till today is informed by the fact that when i was a child 
I made the hardest choice possible and I do not regret it. And the sword is a constant reminder that she was willing to sacrifice the very thing that is her in order to, you know, get through this traumatic event. It's a very powerful, interesting storyline con- conceit. And it's just thrown away here because Belasco made the sword. And I hate it. I hate it so much. You have every right to hate it. The Ileana story is amazing for all the reasons that you said. And yeah, yeah I'm just kind of letting it go because what can I do? But you are 110% right. Um, I will touch on the like costume thing just a little bit here. I like it partly because of the art. And I will say that as somebody who has complicated gendery feelings about do I want to like romance Nightcrawler or have sex with Nightcrawler or be Nightcrawler? Having this like blonde lady wearing the Nightcrawler costume is an interesting dynamic for me um but also you know speaking to their bond right like i always love i mean part of the reason i like sort of like romance and superhero comics is because you can have this co-adventurer romance right where both people get to be a superhero which is so rare in like basically all other media i mean it's obviously become a lot more common in the last 20 years of media but like when i was growing up that was super rare it's a central thing that attracts me to the genre the opportunity to be a superhero alongside your romantic partner and with them both wearing the costume here both being acrobats you know it alludes to that equality you know she's not a damsel in distress even though he does save her um opening up this issue that's sort of one of the things that i don't love about it we get two pages of her sort of screaming and being vulnerable when the story starts even though the story is ostensibly about her that's generic in a way that i don't like but at the same time again the suggestion that they were acrobats together wearing this costume together and I do like that. I mean, there are reasons why I want to root for this couple. We all know the foster sibling thing. It's bad. I get it. Don't at me about it, as I always say, but barely still. mentioned in this one. I barely know. I know. It. I wonder. In fact, I wonder, Drew, did you even know that? Because it's uh, they. It's completely understated here, and I, I news to me. Yeah, I there like you go. that. If you, again, if you li- listen to the Simply Amazing podcast, I, I, I um, where I was a guest, where I explained that I did the research in the. I'm going to say gypsy because that's the word that they use then. But in the Romani culture that Kurt probably came from, probably accurate because there's not exactly a concept of adoption the way that we use it in America and Canada today. Probably what would have happened was if he were an orphan, he would have been taken in by the culture. Someone would have acted as his mother. He would have considered uh, Margali to be his guardian and therefore mother, but probably would have very unlikely considered Amanda to be his sister in the same way. It doesn't, their culture would not have worked the way that we would have said it as. So it's actually probably more realistic. Now, it's complicated by the fact that he always calls Stefan brother and that he also wouldn't have done that. So I just assumed that they were you know, so close that they call each other brothers the way anybody who has a best friend would be. So it's actually not as weird as people want to make it out to be. Yeah, I know. And I mean, we get a little bit of the sense of this being kind of like a communal situation here, which again, I think would be a very useful way to kind of rewrite the histories of these characters and make some of those connections clearer for better or worse which every time we revisit nightcrawler's origin story it gets more complicated and worse i'm 
really strongly looking forward to the one that's starting at the end of this month. I am not looking forward to it. Anyway, <laughs> I will be hate reading that and I'll report back. Let's come back to you for the final word, Drew. Um, anything that you would like to circle back to that we didn't get a chance to discuss? Any other elements of this comic that interested you or baffled you that you want to talk about in closing? Uh, I just, two more things that, uh, connections that I made to the Please. film Freaks. Um, so the first one, it, just based on this new revelation to me that uh, Amanda and Kurt are foster siblings, the main couple in the film Freaks, Hans and Frida, are played by brother and sister. Oh, uh, but are a, but are a romantic couple in the film. Uh, so there's there's that undercurrent in Freaks as well, uh, wow. which. Maybe, uh, like, it wouldn't surprise me if someone involved in this issue consulted Todd Browning's film mm. in, you know, in brainstorming ideas here. And the last thing I wanted to come back to, to bring it back to Stan Lee, was this opening conceit of Stan as a carnival barker, because that's the same way that Freaks opens. Mm. Uh, it, there's actually, we have the title card on the screen and then the carnival barker actually rips the title card off the screen as though it's like a like a like a advertisement a diegetic in world piece of paper that he could rip and then he serves this function as a frame narrator essentially basically telling uh, a diegetic audience but by extension the film audience how they should feel about the spectacles that they're about to see and it's sort of this uncertain diegetic status where they're both inside the fiction but outside as well and in the case here he, stan is actually kind of explicitly outside the fiction in, in this opening page he's giving us this narration refers to this month's special flashback issue of excalibur he knows he's in a comic, and then he actually is turning the page for you, yep. very much like the Carnival Barker and Freaks ripping the title card off the mm. screen and then revealing the diegetic world underneath. Uh, so that was just one final connection I wanted to make since I've got freaks on the brain. No, I'm willing I to appreciate that. that. Yeah, I'm willing to accept that this is just the total perfect research on Rob's part and all of it is intentional. So you've nailed it. Yeah, it really was perfect synergy uh, to have me on the podcast. Uh, as I said, this week of all weeks. Yeah, and I, in terms of callbacks, too, we didn't even talk about the cover, and I'll just mention it uh, briefly, that I do love that it's specifically a callback to a Cockrum cover, given that this is a Nightcrawler origin issue. Always appreciate Dave being spotlighted within Nightcrawler's origins, given the affection that he had for that character that he created. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do, as I command. One day king will come and the sword will rise again um we will wrap things up there thanks for such a wonderful conversation as i said i've podcasted about this issue before and yet everybody always brings something new to it and i love that talking about comics 
So Drew, thank you so much once again for joining us. And before we go, of course, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can check out some of your work. So we already hyped you in your bio, but remind listeners of what projects, past, present, future, they should be rushing to check out. Sure. I mean, the the thing that's coming out most immediately is the next issue of JCMS, which I believe is issue 62.5. It is going to be, it's the open access issue of the year. So it will be accessible. It's not behind a paywall. It will be on their website. Uh, Maybe you can uh, tweet about it since I don't tweet. And no one's going to be tweeting by then. (laughs) No, sure. Uh, Or Xing, if if that's what what we're saying, if that's the verb form. Uh, But that's (laughs) JCMS is is going to be home to my uh, Into the Spider-Verse paper, which at this point I wrote two or three years ago. Uh, I'm immensely proud of it. I really am looking forward to people finally getting to read it. Um, You already mentioned my books at the top. The books are available still. Uh, And, uh, you know, they can follow you uh, for updates on small screen supers. (laughs) They can indeed. And uh, yeah, just thanks so much again for joining us, Drew. My greatest pleasure. Next, the team goes to dinner, but only some of them come as themselves in Excalibur number 111, Broken Vows. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we did for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or maybe pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, I'm not really encouraging that right now. But anyway, let us know. You can reach out via our website at goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via Twitter. Twitter at Gosh Golly Wow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Mav and Andrew, for another flashy convo. Thank you, Drew, for flashing back with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought for Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. You know, I don't know how long it's been that on the outline it says, says a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought for Music for our truly epic theme song, because I clearly <laughs> misspelled it.